because I believe science might offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. Why someone took so long to hire that guy is beyond me. Anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. One of the great things about money is it, it buys a lot of things. One of which is the luxury to disregard what baseball likes, doesn't like, what baseball thinks, doesn't think. It's a threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. How can you not be romantic about baseball? All right, Brent Porso here on another Baseball Ops podcast. Special guest today, none other than uh, a coach I've really enjoyed watching. Um, very talented coach here, Coach uh, Bobby Stroop. We have on the show from Apex. How's it going, Bobby? It's going great, man. How you doing, Brent? I'm doing awesome. So, you know, introduction here. Um, I always believe guys are usually better at introducing themselves because I'll leave something out. Um, can you give them an introduction and what you do and uh, kind of your resume? Yeah, so I've been in human performance for around 20 years now. I've started off at the high school level, had some great mentors, and then from there um, went into the private sector. We've gone everywhere from just work, starting off working with middle school kids uh, to now we train over um, probably around 200 professional athletes within six different sports, the majority being NFL and Major League Baseball. And my background is uh, I'm a strength conditioning coach by trade and choice. I'm, I did a fellowship in therapy out of necessity, so I've got a little bit of a background in both, um, and I've got a great team behind me. So today you're, you're, you're getting someone that's representing a, a, lot, of, a lot of people on our team and um, we just that the strength of our company really is our people. We've got a lot of good people behind me. So talk about APEC. Um, how does the ownership go? Are you, are you in the ownership? Or are you just how does it how does it lay out? I'm the sole owner, so there's nobody to blame but me. Cool. Man, it's, that's go. it. <laughs> and and the the hats you wear are what? I, I'm interested because I'm like you. I'm a sole owner here. So uh, talk talk about these hats that you wear every day. I mean, I wear all the hats. I cleaned the bathrooms last week, nice. Brent. You know how this goes, man. Right. I mean, it's it's great, but the, the good thing about it is there's nowhere to hide. Like, there's no one to blame. When you're at the top, every problem is your problem. You you take ownership of that, and then you've got an opportunity to improve. So that's always the way I've looked at it. You definitely do take ownership, and you're like me, man. And that, and that was a cool thing, because unfortunately, we, we probably didn't meet on the best <laughs> ties here. Unfortunately, I'll take the blame, and, and I do apologize for my attitude and, and how I went at it. But uh, we, just for everyone listening, uh, Coach Bobby and I met each other in a Twitter battle, as, as, <laughs> you know, which wasn't, uh, wasn't fun. And I think we were both kind of frustrated. I, I was frustrated in what, you know, the challenges of keeping baseball players healthy. Uh, and I think you were frustrated in you know, my, my loud mouth at the time. But I mean, you want to elaborate more on, on how we met? Yeah, I mean, let's. People probably know. I mean, we met over the Kopech uh, injury, and I. The, the thing I can respect is you have a lot of passion. Um, I think we're both very passionate guys. We care about our people, right? right? And we care about what happens. And you've got you've got initiatives, and you've got things you believe in that you're going for. And it just so happened that we kind of crossed paths um, in a righteous mission that was kind of conflicting right there. Yeah. So. And when Kopech got hurt, there was a lot of stuff out there. Um, and you had commented about the weighted ball being a contributing factor for him. But, I didn't, know, but I didn't know. I mean, I want people to know. I'm just speaking off my assumptions. So uh, you're, this has come from the horse's mouth here. So this is, this is a better perspective. 
No, I mean, and I get it. I understand. I understand your point, your place, and, and all the things you're doing to help. And what it was is just more or less a, a thing where it really made us think about what what is it that we're putting out there? Because if we only put out a couple of videos in off season, and that's one of them, then there can be a lot of assumptions about what it is that we do. And now that we've gotten to know each other a lot better, I think that you know that there's a lot more depth Definitely. and value to the things that, that we bring uh, for athletes. But that's not important. What was most important to me was I had a kid that was hurting from a situation that. Um, was, was already what it was, and I was being protective of a kid that I cared about. Yeah. And, and, and you were being protective about an initiative and something that, that you cared about. Now, I think in both of those instances, neither, no, neither person was wrong, but either way, it's a, it's a funny way to meet somebody. Yeah, that, I know. I've met a lot of people on that, that way. Like, <laughs> I bet you have. I know. But, you know, the thing was, and I think you're right, I really do feel uh, a kinship with my fellow strength coaches um, because, you know, I've been in this sport for a while as a player and then now as a coach, and it's been really absent of our minds, of, of, of strength coaches or our perspectives. So when I see strength coaches, coaches coming in and influencing it, I get very excited. And then if, you know, if something can quickly be spun against them, which of course an injury is always going to be spun against a strength coach, I, I get very like overprotective. I get very defensive. And, and not really trying to attack other coaches. I'm just like, hey, guys, like, what can we do better here? Because, I mean, shoot, at the end of the day, we're in a sport that has a serious problem with injury. So, I mean, we're already up against serious challenges here. But, I mean, what can we do better, Bobby? And this is a good point to talk about that. What can we do better to help these guys stay healthy when we don't have a lot of influence on them in season? I think there's a multitude of things that we can do, and you know that. But, I, you know, first thing would be to go back in time and influence their development in their youth. And I'm not a big, like, anti-baseball. Kids shouldn't throw. But I just think proprioceptively and then physiologically, making sure that these kids are developing in the proper order and in the proper way uh, to, to make sure that, you know, you're not going to prevent injuries, but you can reduce things that shouldn't have happened. And in the case of some of these guys, I mean, you and I both know some guys come in, and if you do a proper evaluation, you know that they're on a they're on a ticking time clock. That you've got something that is probably going to happen because of what they've done. It's predetermined that something is going to happen. However, we can prolong that. I mean, I I know you've worked with guys. I've worked with guys that have issues in their UCL, and they can make it six years. They can make it four years. Some can make it one. But a lot of those things are time bombs that were put into place when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So that's the first thing is continuing to educate parents and youth coaches and, and, and trying to make sure that these, these kids are developing as athletes and human beings first instead of baseball players and even furthermore as pitchers. Exactly. I, I interviewed uh, Jim Morris, the guy from the movie The Rookie. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. And he had nine arm surgeries. And, you know, they didn't even tell this in the movie, which would have made the story even better. He had, that should have been the first. I know. He had nine arm surgeries, and they took out 80% of his deltoid. How, how, do you, how, I mean, can you imagine he still threw that hard? <laughs> and, and he said uh, he said when they were on his fifth arm surgery, Dr. Job, you know, the legendary doctor who invented the Tommy John surgery, yeah. he told Jim, he said, Jim – most of the injury you've done to your arm occurred before you were 15 years old. Of course. Right. I, I, let's elaborate on that. Like, tell these kids how important it is to really get a good base in, 
in uh, you know base level of training and, and development in this game because it, it really is critical to your health at the end of your career. I think I mean we can get really nerdy here, but I, I just think you know physiologically your body is constantly renewing tissues. There's adaptations that are making taking place. So training in its most basic form is just adaptation. You can watch plants adapt to sunlight. We're we're no different. We're we're just plants with emotion basically. That's it. So. I mean, I think the thing that kids got to understand is if you do something repeatedly, your body's going to make an adaptation. Well, if you make adaptations when you're young and your your arm length on your right side is even a millimeter off or say the formation around that UCL is a little bit abnormal, the bone spurs and the things and the deformities that can come from that, they're going to only compound by 10 to 15 times when you go through puberty. So it, it's it's almost like putting plants in a place that they don't have a chance to grow. People just aren't looking at it that way and then all of a sudden – kid gets hurt and they're like well what did he do last six weeks this this isn't this isn't what got you here um and you know with bone spurs and things like that that's what that is that's the body doing too much also too i just i mean i I just had a kid and this doesn't happen to me a lot either it it tore his ucl in season it happened to be the game he went from topping it out at probably previously 93 hitting 96 that game and then it tore and the doctor said to him that that was a tear that more than likely probably just showed, happened in that game. He, ne- he didn't even have pain prior to that. That's the hard thing with that ligament as well is that you could just have a game where, for example, your ball speed goes up three miles an hour than, you know, as far as your top level. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you're more fatigued that day. It's the perfect storm. I mean, don't you, I mean perfect storms can happen too that could be unrelated to your – to, you know, it can be. It's related, but not specifically related to how you train that off season, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, and, and believe it or not, it, the same thing can happen with ACL injury, and in that all these athletes are getting bigger and faster and stronger. But it takes time for the tendons and ligaments and the proprioceptors to adapt to the new style. It's like if you put a race car driver in a new car today that he's racing in, and it's say. I don't know metrics for cars, but it's a lot faster in acceleration. It's a lot faster around the corners. There's a good chance he's not going to perform at a high level, and he's got a higher risk of wrecking that car. Exactly. I use cars all the time. It's a great analogy. Yeah, and so when you improve running speed for an athlete, it's going to take a while for the body to proprioceptively and neurologically adapt to the brakes it needs and the demands of that. And then the same thing with the arm. It's no different. So when you and I put – you know, you've had extremes. I've had extremes where guys go up 10 miles an hour – that's a very dangerous point of time for those guys from a volume standpoint. And then when you and I can't have manage their volume and we know they're up that much, it's a it's the most risky time in their career when they've made those type of improvements. Right, and it's why I my velocity approach is building the athlete, assessing across the board, mobility, proprioception, street speed, strength, power. I want right. to see all these things improving. So when they do make the 10-mile-an-hour jump, their body's in a position to survive it as opposed to doing a traditional or the, these more conventional throwing, extreme throwing-based approaches to where when they make a 10-mile-an-hour jump, there's a pretty good chance the only thing that really increased was, was arm speed, uh, and, and you don't really have the foundation around it to support that kind of enhancement. That, that's absolutely the right approach because if you don't spherically develop an athlete with all those properties on the force velocity curve and the eccentric properties, deceleration properties, you're not giving them their best chance. I mean, even with that, we know that there is the perfect storm. There are issues. You know, guy, if a guy, if it's you know, if it's cold 
and it's raining and a guy comes out after an hour rain delay, that's not a good that's not a good situation for us to be in with our athletes. Um, there's a lot of things we can't control, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, building the athlete to where their body is sufficient in all those areas, they've got their best chance moving forward. You know, I was really intrigued by a guy who retired last year, Mark Appel. He was the first-round draft pick in, I think, 15 or something. He came out of Stanford. And brilliant, really smart kid right out of Stanford. And first-round draft pick. I mean, they had high hopes from, I think, in the Houston organization. And he gets to AAA, and he just straight-up quits. It's like, I'm done. And if you looked at what he had gone through, he had gone through injury after injury after injury after injury. And I got it. I, I, I mean, as much as I would have liked to put my opinion in on it and help him, of course, but I, I got why he was quitting. It's just gotten to the point now that you have to throw so hard or you have to be at such a high level of performance. And baseball is so consistent. I mean, plays so often that if your body isn't built for that, meaning throwing upper 90s through a 100 and something game season, um, yeah. you, you might might have to make that decision hey do I really want to destroy my body like this or not it's kind of like what football players are doing going into the NFL going do I really want to have about five more major concussions in my professional career I mean don't you think that that's kind of where baseball and football have become similar there's choices to be made and every body type has got uh, you know potential in these leagues and, and they've got to get there a certain way and that's the beauty of the sport is there's so many ways to do these things on a high level but different body types yield different risk factors, as we know. Um, I mean, we got a bunch of guys under 5'11 throwing high 90s. They need to be on a different training system and a different from a different volume standpoint than the guys that are 6'4 and 6'6 throwing, you know, high 90s. They can't do the same thing. It's just like high-level Olympic sprinters. If you've got a guy that's Olympic caliber, he can't sprint four times a week. I mean, you can go talk to those guys. Some of the baseball people need to spend some more time talking to these guys. They might sprint fast one time a week. And the reason is because the body cannot handle it from a central nervous system standpoint. I think baseball ignores the central nervous system more than they ignore the physiological systems. And they need to catch up on that. All this data doesn't tell you that. You know, they can do all they want. Right. It, it, and I think we're right nailing we're on, we're on something here. Uh, John Smoltz came out. Um, Ron Darling did it too, where they came out and said that, you know, we like Smoltz was saying, I couldn't survive today. If I had to pitch today, upper nineties, like these guys are doing, I, I, you'd have cut my career in half. And, but then their solution is we just shouldn't train and, and throw this hard. We should basically de-evolve back to the 1970s baseball. I mean, what do you think? What's your reaction to that? I, I think that that's a give up. Honestly, I think that's lazy. You know, look, it's I, I am an enemy of tradition. I hate tradition because tradition means we haven't found out a better way, and it's a lazy way to live life. And when you go from an ex, you know extreme like that, and I have the ultimate respect for all those guys. They've done great things in the game of baseball, and they care. But look, when you go from from saying, okay, we need to do something to let's just do nothing again, that's just completely irresponsible. We have more information than it's, that. It, yeah, it is ignorant. And, and, but the thing is, is that what needs to be done, and here's the solution, because once again, I hate being the critic without the solution. So here's the yeah. solution is we need to do, like you said, in season, these organizations have to have a better understanding of the athlete they're dealing with, and they need yep. to load them accordingly in their training and how often they pitch. I mean, I've, I've got a guy right now been working with Trevor Rosenthal. He, th th this guy, he doesn't have a lot of 
he doesn't have a lot of range of motion. He's very tight, but he's incredibly explosive. He's not a guy you want to throw every single day. His joint mobility, he's just going he's going to have those days where his, everything's tightening up, everything's fatigued, and then he doesn't have enough joint mobility to work with that and he just he crashes and I can see him. He goes out there, he's he's a shell of himself. His skill is is completely failing. And, you know, and, and they're putting a lot of mental pressure on him at that point when he just needs time off. I mean, wouldn't you say that that's the solution that these organizations need to better understand their athletes and the volume they can handle? And then that's how they should create their lineups, not based on, you know, who's the, the best statistic for this this guy that they're facing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're in the special forces, they've got things monitoring the central nervous system. If you're not above a 95 percent ready. Uh, you don't go make the shot that day. I don't care if you're the best shot on the team. And I think that for baseball, this is where they're missing the boat. Yes, we have all this great data, and there's a lot of people contributing to baseball changing in a lot of positive ways, including yourself. But but when do we have conversations with people and say, how are you feeling today? You know, th- th- this is the hard this is the hard part. Is the answer is it's so subjective. You have to have people that are good decision makers on what to do with people on a daily basis. I mean, I, I've got a, a reliever in, in AJ Minter that. You know, relievers are relievers for a reason. It's not because they can't pitch. Usually, their central nervous system is more sensitive than these starters. That's why they got into that role in the first place. I can't train AJ with a lot of high volume or he, he breaks. He's like a sports car. You don't go run the sports car six days a week. You run it when it's nice outside, and you run it when the roads are right and when there's not much traffic, and you run it fast. With a guy like AJ, anytime anybody's tried to put too much volume on him, what's happened? I mean, go back and look at his college career. Even in our off seasons, you know, Going back to high school, I remember, and even middle school, you start learning about people, and then you start making better decisions. You know what? This guy only needs two hard training days a week. Is it, but I have other guys that got to move every day, or they're just they're trash. They're like the Tin Man, you know. And a guy like Josh Tomlin, who's had a great career for what he is, you know, when he in some places he's been, they want to stretch him out and stretch him out. I'm like, look, you can't do that. His velocity will go down, and more importantly, his spin rate will go down. And he can't pitch when he's when you stretch him out on the table for two hours before he pitches. It won't work. So you can't have these protocols. I had the same thing. I had a guy, Cody Hall, was a hundred mile an hour guy and you know, pitched up to almost ten years in minor league ball and he was a one inning guy from day one. And the Rays his last season wanted to try to get him up in the bigs and you know, across the their whole staff wanted to go to these two, three inning relievers and take him out of the right. one inning roles. And you know, a month in, he's thrown more pitches than he thrown last year, and everything's tightening up on him. And he demanded he put himself in the DL, even though he wasn't hurt, because he knew if he kept doing that to his body, he was going to get injured. And and then he wound up getting so frustrated, he quit. He quit ball. I think that's the problem here. It's there. We do need that. Like I believe the next revolution in baseball is this biometric revolution of understanding the biomechanics of the skill and how the central nervous system is recovering, like you said. And, and once they have that data and they understand that data and how to use that data to, to create better in-game statistics and data, I think that's when you finally have a complete product. Absolutely. I mean, look at track and field is the easiest example, okay? 60-meter champions don't win the 200. And they hardly ever win the 100. And 100-meter champions don't want to race in the 60 because they know they don't win it. And 400 meter guys wouldn't dare. And you're talking about really fast people. You need to look at just, you can look at horse racing, you can look at track and field. Just because it's an arm, it's not different to the central nervous system. I mean, go look at guys in the track and field that only are successful at meets that have one heat. 
And then you can go look like their coaches won't let them enter a meet that they're going to have to run prelims for four days. Like you, it, these are decisions you make. That's why some guys don't perform at the Olympics because they can't do it that many times in a row. But, and that's but, why guys dope and do all those things. But in the Olympics, who's making those decisions in the Olympics? I mean, are, I think that's the problem. In baseball, the ones making the decisions aren't educated or, you know, they don't have the credentials of that, you know, a strength coach would have or a, ultimately, I mean, I think strength coaches are going to be the better minds for that, don't you think? I mean, who's making those decisions in the, in the Olympics where they're making those better decisions? I think in the Olympics, it's the personal coaches that are doing that. The personal coaches are making those decisions. Um, and a lot of times the athlete, it needs to be a more athlete open communication model, I think, in baseball. Not that they're in control because I think that's anarchy, but the communication's got to improve. There's got to be daily conversations, and the teams that are going to thrive are going to be the ones that understand that it's a, it's a central nervous system driven sport. I mean, it truly is. And that is what this game is. It's skill, central nervous system. There is physiology behind it, but much like golf and some of these others, it's a, it's a unique combination of those skill sets and, and where you're at on a given day. Has, uh, with, with all your expertise, has any, um, I mean, I know I'm, I'm obviously gearing you to baseball because that's my audience. I know you, you, you cover, you know, like you were talking about many other sports, but has anyone in baseball approached you with help within their organization? Yeah, there's been a couple. You know, I, I, I shouldn't mention names, but right. there's been a few times, uh, probably three to five teams that I've had discussions with on what they're doing internally in a number of different areas. And a lot of it is more or less how are they creating a seamless conversation between PT, athletic training, uh, pitching coach, pitching coach yeah. and then also Skilled strength coach. conditioning coach. Because the problem is, is that all these guys have different ideas and what happens is they're in these blood rivals against each other and then the players in the middle and, you know, he's got to end up being his own coach and tempering those things. And that's an added stressor that's you know really unnecessary. Well, awesome. Um, just, I mean, not, not that we're going to change the subject. I'm going to stay on baseball, but what, what's your favorite sport to work with? Oh man, I, I just love people. I, I don't have a favorite sport. Um, I love baseball players because they're thinkers and, they will really take concepts that we we expand on, and they'll they'll ask great questions, and they'll do the things. Now, football is just so different in that these guys they, you know, they're more of surface level. They want now. They want it. They want the payoff right now. They want to work hard. Um, so it's just different. You know, track and field is is unique in that everything's so objective. So it's refreshing. Um, you know, f fighting MMA and all those things is fun, but it's frustrating sport because you can be the great fighter but lose uh, to a guy that's inferior. I mean, there's just it's hard to pick a favorite sport, man. But I love good people. How about this? I like I like to work with the good people and less with the bad people. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, I I was in the film business for a small amount of time, and uh, that was kind of the same thing. They didn't really even care if you could act; they just wanted to like you. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course, because you got to spend time with that person. That's right. where you're working, right? Right. So I'm pretty excited if you can talk about what you, you know, developing. I don't, I don't know how long you you worked with him, but I think it's been a while. How what's it been like? And talk about the process of developing. And this is going to be in football, but Patrick Mahomes and and I think there's a cool thing here because he isn't he come from a baseball family? Yeah. So uh, the. Like, if you don't mind, I'd love to tell a story about how please. I got that opportunity with him. Yeah, please. So, several years ago, um, 
in fact, when Patrick was in fourth grade, third third to fourth grade, somewhere in that transition that summer, his dad, Pat Sr., played had a major league career for about 13 years, bounced around, was a reliever starter. I had some good moments, uh, played for some good teams. And uh, he came to me and he wanted to make a comeback. We were training some guys at the time. We had uh, a few guys that were in the big leagues, and he wanted to make a comeback. So um, the chances of that happening realistically weren't good, and we knew it. But there was a lot of things he was going through in his personal life, and he needed he needed it. He needed to do this for himself. And um, for me, I, I believe that coaching is more than just getting it done on the field. And, and I wanted to do that. I, I just felt like it was an important step for him. And so we went to work, and there was some accountabilities and some personal things in his life that, that I think he's grateful for. And through that process, we developed a relationship. And then at the end of it, he just said, hey, I've got this, I've got this kid I'd love you to work with. He's He's good at a lot of the sports he plays, but he's just not athletic like me. And he was referring to he doesn't move that well, and he's just he was a different type of athlete. Because Pat Senior is very fast twitch, very he was a sprinter, he was all these things, but uh, Patrick was not. So we we began working together when he, at a very young age. Uh, he was just like any other kid, you know. He 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 he, he wasn't dominant in everything. Um, he, he showed some great skill and promise in others, and throughout his. Uh, you know, history's written right now, but throughout his time, I mean, people don't understand the gap between that fourth grade and now. This guy didn't start varsity at quarterback till the third game of his junior year. So wow. it wasn't just all this golden road for this kid that was the son of a pro ball player. Right. You know, he's worked his tail off, um, and he's one of the best human beings that I've known in that he's just – he took those experiences from his dad, learned from the things that may, may not have been optimal, um, was able to, 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 he has a personality that's perfect, but he just stays right in the middle. He's never excited, he's never upset, and he just continues to work on himself. And it's, it's just been a pleasure to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I see he probably has not just this already had a great career, but he has a, a really promising long career. I mean, don't you think he's a guy who's going to be around for a while? He loves the game, man. It's a part of who he is, and he's going to play as long as he can. I mean, there's, there's no end in sight right now for him. Does he, did he uh, play much baseball in his life? Oh, yeah. He played a lot of baseball, and he was a big-time pitcher. There was a time, you know, when he and Kopech faced each other a couple times, and they both could throw, you know, low 90s, wow. and they'd go at it. Pat, Pat had a little less control than Mike probably, but he was looked at by a lot of teams as an outfield prospect. But the guy could play baseball. I mean, they went several games deep in the playoffs every year with him playing from a freshman up, and – Everyone thought he was going to be a baseball player until about the middle of his junior year. And then even then, he only had one offer for quarterback. Uh, and, you know, he wanted to go to a place where he could play baseball. It wasn't until after his freshman year that we discussed, hey, maybe we should consider not playing baseball anymore. Wow. And that you have a realistic possibility to be a quarterback. And, you know, th amazing. this is all fairly – it's crazy. I mean, it's all fairly new for him. Well, and, and talk about that. Baseball, I think, is is having problems with that. There, it, for a while, I thought it was going to swing and we were going to gain football players, and now I feel like we're losing them to football. What do you think's going on? I think it just depends on the person. I, I think for the quarterback position in particular, if you look at it, I mean, it's got to start off with the, the money in that these guys know that as a quarterback, that's one of the top ways to have a brand for, for the rest of your life. So being a starting quarterback in the NFL – is going to probably yield you more lifetime opportunities from a financial standpoint than being someone that has a chance at being an MLB starter. The road to the Major League Baseball is so much longer from college 
And, and I think that that, like with Kyler Murray, you see that it cost him because if they could have guaranteed him a 40-man spot right now, he probably would be a baseball player. Which, which is unheard of. <laughs> to, right. To, yeah, and, that, and you're right. I mean, not only is it a longer road through a farming system, but, I mean, look how many more games you have to endure. I mean, your seasons are insane compared to football. I know football, there's more brute force on your body, but just the, the endurance and, and the, the beating that you take over time in baseball is nowhere close to, to you know, or football is nowhere close to what, what baseball goes through. So you're right. I don't – I think that's where football is going to keep winning is because those athletes, are, are they get real concerned if they think they can, you know, can I survive 10 years in Major League Baseball? That's insane, you know? It is. Well, I think that a lot of them don't know if they're ever going to get there, and they know they're going to get FaceTime right now if they go in the NFL. They're going to be right in the front of everyone's mind. So from a branding standpoint, marketability standpoint, um, you know, if the kid's not playing quarterback, I think it's pretty – I think it's 50-50. I think it depends. But – Quarterbacks, it'd be tough to choose Major League Baseball. You just you're not going to have the opportunities that you would as an NFL player from a career standpoint uh, beyond beyond the field, in my opinion. And, you know, not not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you know, we I was A Rod was talking about something the other day about how the Major League Baseball is evaluated at 10 billion, and in the NBA is at 16 billion, which blew my mind. Um, do you think baseball's failing when it comes to selling their sport um, at this point? I think I think there's a lot of factors, Brent. I mean, the NBA is a hard one because it truly is a worldwide sport. Anybody can pick up a basketball and go play it in the entire world. I mean, you go to China, NBA is everything, everything. You go around the world, NBA is everything. They know these players; they can see their faces. Baseball's not popular in every area of the, of the world, even though we like to think it. In China, they don't they don't care. They're not going to watch it. And some of these places I've been, um, unfortunately, it's a little harder to just get together a neighborhood baseball game. And so I think that that it's not that, that that's nothing baseball can do. But I think outside of some of these areas of the of the world, like the Dominican and some of these places where it's just in the culture, it's a little less natural to just go play pickup baseball. And I think that's fundamentally always going to be the root of the sports. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, let's dive into, if you don't mind, uh, Michael Kopech. Talk about, if you can, talk about his development. Like, what what was pivotal in building building him? I mean, he coming up, he I mean, he's just been known as a freak. Obviously, great shape. Um, I'm sure kudos to you, and and also an incredibly hard thrower, top prospect. Talk about his development. Yeah, so Mike Mike came to us late. I mean, it was after high school, but before he kind of had, you know, coming in with the White Sox, or not with the White Sox, with the Red Sox. Um, I met him at a charity event where we were just talking to kids about, you know, making good choices and things. And um, and Mike had just come off a, a season where he got suspended for 50 games for performance enhancement uh, substances. And we just had a conversation, and I said, look, you know. Some people might be down on you right now, but I, I would love an opportunity to work with you. And I just saw a kid that wanted to be great. Like with every fiber of his being, he wanted to be great. And he had people around him that were doing everything that they could. But um, he just professionally speaking, he had some holes, and he knew that. And he was able to get mentorship from Josh Tomlin and some other veteran pitchers that we had. And um, what, what I saw from him was he was seeking – he was seeking professionalism, and, and this guy changed his whole demeanor from a guy that used to get fired up about people taking parking spots to someone that's gracious and had conversations with strangers and learned how to handle himself, uh, took nutrition very seriously. And while he never took steroids or anything like that, 
like a kid that has a contract shouldn't be taking stuff from GNC, and he knows that. You know, th things like that that are vanity-type substances and things that um, he started making decisions that were appropriate and, and making changes to what he, you know, his image on Twitter and who he was and understanding his influence. And so the, really the transformation for Kopech, I mean, it really started inside out in, in deciding, okay, what type of person do I want to be? What's my legacy going to be even if I don't have baseball? And then, and then for us, it was instilling in him that like, hey, there's, there's this person that is not a baseball player that you got to develop, right? And, and Michael bought into that. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but this guy will, will – he'll read at least a book a month at this point. He's completely changed. He's very dedicated. Um, and I'll be the first to tell you, I mean, we, when we got him, you're talking about a guy that his reputation was that he long tossed six days a week and threw as hard as he can off the mound four days a week. Him and his dad were doing med ball stuff online that, you know, I, I mean – nothing's bad it's just how you do it right but what i'm saying is is that we knew that there was a lot of risk factors when we got this kid but that wasn't me saying oh i better not train this kid or try to pursue him because he's gonna end up getting hurt and people are gonna blame me it's it's that hey you know this is a kid that i think has the right mentality i see it in his eyes i see someone that's got the potential to affect a lot of people and change the game of baseball if he really goes and nails this thing and I had, a, I had a strong belief from the first moment that I met him, and it was because I could feel the passion and the, just the re realness of who he was. And so, you know, for us, it was more about transforming who he was as a person. And, of course, man, like, <laughs> I mean, he's a freak. I mean, he, he yeah. was – Kyle, what did he weigh when he started? 215, 210? To 205. I mean, Brent, we put him in a, just a structured strength conditioning program, nothing crazy, just our basic ger uh, general prep, and the dude gained 14 pounds in like three weeks. And we're looking at each other like, okay, he's got the, he's got the, the, the physiology, and he just started responding to the point where we had to, we have to limit his volume, or he like that stuff. Those pictures you see him, Mike only takes protein, and he's finicky about that. He truly is. A freak, you know. We have to be careful of what we expose him to because he's a very fast adapter. And when I say fast adapter, I mean, that video that, of him throwing 110—that was the first day he ever did pull downs. Like I'm not kidding you. And we only do it about three times in off season, or had at that point. And I won't ever do it with him again because I don't know how far down that road right, we ever should. It gets so extreme so fast. <laughs> exactly, and he. He, he truly – I have belief in Michael Kopech, and I'm going to tell you right here, he's going to come back from this, and I think he's going to be great just from the standpoint of he has what it takes mentally, professionally. He loves this game, and if he has the right coaching around him, it's it truly is limitless what he can do. I, I have a strong belief in this kid. When's he scheduled to be back? You know, he's going to be – they're going to take it slow this year. And he's, they're not going to let him start till next year's spring training. They might let him get some innings in, in, the, uh, you know, in the fall. I, I don't know their plan in particular. I don't want to speak for the White Sox. But <clears throat> right now he's enjoying life in baseball, and it was much needed. Um, yeah, I bet it was. La last year was, you know, since he threw that 110 and threw 105 off the mound and tied Chapman's velocity and all that, I think he just – there was pressure internally building on him that he felt like he needed to do these things that weren't real. And getting to the major leagues I think was important to him. And then when he got there, he pitched so well that I think even though he knew – I mean I, I was 
I'm not going to talk about discussions, but it, we were concerned about his velocity being down in his first day up, his debut. But Mike wanted to pitch, and the communication wasn't optimal. Um, could, could we have preserved some things if communication was best on all sides, White Sox, Kopech, us? Maybe. But the reality is that thing was probably going to go from bef- way before we met him, sooner than later. Yeah, I, and I'm, I mean, I don't know how honest a lot of these guys are and how they feel when they're about to make their big league debut. He could have been. No, nah, they want to pitch, man. Yeah, yeah. He could have been hurting at that point because you know they're rushed. They 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 feel rushed because they're trying to do like you said. They're trying to every game trying to impress and go to another level. It was like when Michael Jordan dunked from the foul line. He goes, "What next year they're going to want me to dunk from the three? You know, from the three point line." So yeah. it, that's just the way an athlete feels when they do something like insanely impressive, like throw 105. They feel like they have to find another level, and sometimes that that was their their optimal level, you know. So I mean, I think that makes sense. And, and you know, when a guy comes back from an injury like that, they have to change, and and potent, and ideally, usually they change for the better. So I'm just as excited for him um, because I think it's going to be a great new career for him from here on out. Um, like, what are some key things that we can give those out there that, you know, come from your perspective of what's really, really key for player development with these kids? You know, a lot of these kids in baseball can't get out of a season. So I, ideally, I, you know, it's just trying to get them out of a season and, and taking time like in an off season to work on stuff. But, um, I mean, if you, say what your opinion is on that, but also too, what what are some key things that they need to lay down and in, in, in that good base level to build themselves and prepare themselves for this game? I think that just a mo- from a simplicity standpoint, you've got to dedicate three days a week to focus on human performance outside of baseball, and that should be year round at minimum. I think in the off season you can obviously go more five to six if you're smart about what you're doing, and. But in season, guys get they get they think it's voodoo. Like you can spend twenty minutes and do something great, restore and regenerate tissues. But if you're not spending three times a week on your body from a human performance standpoint, then I think that you're gonna your, your risk factors go up. You know that your your power capabilities go up. Your central nervous system won't be grooved and primed. And I think that where guys get off is they just they don't know what to do and they're worried about it. They're worrying about it affecting their performance, which I think is faulty thought process. So good things to do would be obviously some strength development. I mean, you know, just learning how to throw in some squats, lunges, and, you know, some lateral work. I mean, what are some basic things we can throw out there that they could do in those three days? I would like, to, I would like for people to look at it a few different ways. Number one, hormonally, you, you want your testosterone levels high when, you are, when you're playing. So at least once every 10 days, you need to lift heavy. So, you know, my version of lifting heavy, your version of lifting heavy, what's good for a shortstop might not be good for a pitcher. I probably wouldn't back squat a pitcher heavy uh, during the season, but maybe some of them like it. And who am I to say that it's not good if it works for them? But hormonally, if you want that hormonal response, you got to get above 85, 90, 92, 95%. You don't have to do 10 sets, but once every 10 days, you need to touch that. Yeah, I, um, I like from, to do that post game, like for a pitcher, right after he pitched. Absolutely hit it post game. Cause then you have a lot of time to recover. Yeah. It gives you the max days to recover. Now, if you just pitch eight innings um, or a complete game, maybe in the morning, maybe, maybe as soon as you get back from the flight, but most of the time those guys should go get a lift right then. And you can get your max strength capabilities right out of the way. If your body feels right. 
So you need to make sure that proprioceptively your body has an opportunity to adapt to those speed changes outside of just pitching because really power production can affect growth hormone levels. It can affect your, your, your elastic components. So working in that 40 to 60% range and, and making sure that you're doing high velocity movements about once every five days, that's going to keep your tendons and your ligament and your fascial systems attuned to producing force and power at, at optimal levels. And where guys make mistakes is they just think they're getting that from throwing, but you're, you're certainly not you're, – you're not affecting the density of those those structures. You're not affecting the conditioning of those structures. You're not yeah. affecting those things like you should and like you can if, you, if you're on a structured system to where you're, you're hitting those things about once every five days. Yeah, and, and that's huge, and I think not enough kids do that. And you know what? At the end of the day, I think the elephant in the room with baseball is a lot of people aren't convinced that strength training works, even still today. And it's like the other day, I, 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 and this happens frequently, I, I, I really work hard for it not to happen, but I'll get these guys that'll become a testimonial. They'll have a lot of success. They'll be 90 plus. They'll be doing great. And then the next season, as opposed to keep doing the programming that we have, they want to just take and cherry pick the things that they felt like worked the best. Like obviously all the strength and power stuff. And then they try to push that through the roof. And then they send me video of them throwing the next year. And they're like, Hey man, I've lost, I'm lost like five miles an hour. And I look at their skill and their skill is a mess. Right. And it, so it's just, I think that's the elephant in the room. Don't you think with baseball is like, well, because I did all this strength and conditioning last off season and now my, my skill sucks. It doesn't work. When it really is the way it works is you, you can't atrophy the skill while you're building your body. You have to really keep them working together, don't you think? Yeah, and I think it's most obvious with fighters. You would never advise an MMA fighter to only work on their ground game or only work on their conditioning or only work on their boxing or their kickboxing even. And I think when you look at some of these outside sports, it helps bring perspective inside the sport. And especially in baseball, you get these guys that can be too, too workout-centric they can be too skill focused, and you got to have a blend. You got to have a blend of these things that's a healthy dose, and you got to know even furthermore what is the key performance indicator? What is the KPI for this individual? Right? Like, what is the thing that is going to affect you the most? And then, if that's not dominating a percentage of your focus and your effort, then it's a problem. But even though that that is the main focus, you've got to have a portfolio that 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 is very diverse from the standpoint of time investment focus. And checking those boxes, and I think that it that is most certainly lacking with baseball players. They're either all in or all out on too many of those things that should be diverse in that really strength and focus and performance portfolio. I think it's because baseball has to do so much. Like a pitcher has to not only keep his body healthy, keep his performance up, but then he has to have a, a pitch strategy, you know, at the plate, right? You know, and per hitter. Uh, and, and so think of all the stress that they're going through on a continuous basis. A lot of them just, it's the capacity to be able to handle all this. I think a lot, what a lot of them are challenged by. So that's why they always want to go, hey, can you just give me the, the key things I need to do? And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I think that everybody's got to find out an amount of energy that they can devote to focus and performance. And when they're out there on the mound, they need to think about very few things. But from a standpoint of I think I think organization needs to be more proactive with these guys and that this is what I have to do in a 10 day in a 10 day block in a 10 day cycle I need to check these boxes at least once 
And too many people, I think even in our profession especially, we look at everything in a week cycle or whatever. I mean, you could push things out to 21 days with a lot of these guys from the standpoint of strength residuals and even performance residuals. Like spend, spend day one focusing on uh, pitch creation. Maybe day seven you're focusing on um, what you throw in certain instances and you devote that. Maybe day eight is a day you work on power development. Maybe maybe day four is maximal strength and just getting out of this thing like, okay, this is what I have to do on a – this is what I have to do when I'm off from – in between my next starts is I do a day one, day two, day three. Why not look at it as between two starts or like a reliever, look at it more of like a triathlon – not triathlon, more of a decathlon type schedule where you only hit days – you only hit things as necessary within 14 days. I just – I don't think we're open-minded enough about the organizational structures for these players and finding things that work with the individuals, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think because there's so much information here and a lot of them just aren't convinced on what works because there's just so many moving pieces. So I, I think the only way we can cut through that is just assessments. Like, you know, I, I believe in you know, a lot of – coaches believe this for hundreds of years is that if you're not assessing frequently then it's that old saying if you're not testing you're guessing I mean how important is it assessing everything across the board so you understand where you are if you're getting better if you're getting worse I mean, how important is that with you and your guys yeah organisms change daily so especially for something as sensitive as throwing so many factors I think it's a lot like sprinting and that you better monitor it because they're different today than they were yesterday. They're different on this Thursday than they were on last Thursday. And I think assessment is key. I'll give you one in the, or one instance that, or not one instance. One thing that I think is that guys need to monitor better is the balance between mobility, flexibility, and stability. Every single athlete needs to move those around like a tuner on a radio. Your mobility ratios to flexibility, your flexibility ratios to stability, and all those in that relationship. That is, that is something that is individual. And if you get that off kilter, and, it, and, it, and when you're training guys, it's going to be different from day to day because of how they're adapting to training or even the throwing programs. Those things affect performance to the nth degree. And yeah. that's something that people don't they, – they're like, oh, I need to be more flexible. So they're more flexible. Well, do you need to be more flexible there? Do you need to be more flexible in this range of motion? Or what about mobility? What about stability? How much is too much stability? What joints do you need to be stability, stable in? What joints does this person need to be stable in? These are questions that, and, and things that aren't being investigated enough. Too much, like you said, it's about velocity or how much a guy squats. And there, there's so many other things that can be key performance indicators that these guys need to take into consideration. Yeah, exactly, man. I mean, you're, you're right on it with my perspective where – you know, you're right. Every all your your power, your speed. I mean, all the things that create a lot of the the performance are really important. But if you don't have to understand how this is going to get to your skill, like your athleticism is is really elite, but you don't know how this is going to get to the skill, you're going to either be injured or you're going to fail in in getting the performance to the skill. So, and it really comes down to you, like you said, if you don't understand the range that each joint has to go through to be able to optimize the skill and specifically with pitching where it's the fastest human movement ever recorded. Yeah. It's, it's it. You're optimizing every single joint in the kinetic chain. And if you don't understand the exact range of where that each joint needs to go and you can't assess that pre training or pre performance, what are the chances that you are mobilized to be able to achieve that in that day? And if you are not, that is going to potentially make you more vulnerable to injury or, or, 
peak performance or less performance. And that's what I see with a lot of my guys that are already, you know, mediocre or under par with their mobility is that on the days that they're tight and sore, you know they're out of range, and that's the days where they're inconsistent at the plate, and then they wind up complaining about arm soreness. And, and I, to right. me, like, that's the icing on the cake. If you can't do that, that's the fate of your career. I mean, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think guys got to know that even when they're not optimal, they got to find a way to perform or, or not that day. Um, and that's, that's on, like, like you said, like that, they got to know better than us where they're at. Right. And they got to know – it's almost like know what's available to you on a day-to-day basis. For a pitcher, it's so such an obvious thing when a certain pitch isn't working, and there's, an, there's a definite reason for that. There's a definite reason. So they've got to figure out what are their available resources that day. Same thing for a hitter. You know, what does he have available? Like what, what part of the plate does he have available that day? And then be smart and watch pitches. And I, I think that sprinting – Coaching sprinters and coaching pitchers is not as different as people would like to think. And I think there needs to be more relationships between people that do one and people that do the other on a high level and then people that do both because the correlations with the central nervous system and, and all these other things, I mean, guys don't PR every time. Right. You know, they, they just don't. And every race is a little different. And if you broke it down, guys don't even look like themselves some days. But they right. still – but what's beautiful about it is sometimes a sprinter will still run the same time in just a completely different way. Just like pitchers can throw the same velocity, just a completely different way. Right. Um, and that's that's the beauty of these sports. And that's why we've got to have people making decisions. And machines mach- machines and metrics will never be able to make all of those decisions, nor will they be able to have those conversations to help coach someone to the highest level. Yeah, it's impl- implementation at the end. and th- I mean, it's good having all the tools and the data, but if you don't know how to implement it, it's of no use. But, you know, the challenge is, like, I even see in a lot of these baseball organizations, they're, they're doing things as far as assessing these athletes, but it's more like, you know, a lot of them using, like, you know, functional movement screens and, and you know, things of, like, pass-fail. And, and, and I've talked to some trainers where I'm like, you know, we're, we were talking about an injured pitcher in the organization, and I'd say, well, what's his hip extension range? And he would say, I don't know. And I mean, we do, we know it's good, and and I'm like, okay, can we be more specific? Because we're not just dealing with the general public here. We're dealing with an elite athlete who's trying to perform an elite movement that a very few people in the world even have the ability to get into these positions. So I'm looking for something around, you know, 25, 35 degrees in this hip extension, and if and if he doesn't have it, then it's going to affect everything in the kinetic chain above that, and dramatically to where that's probably what's causing his injury. So that's. The, that's the push I'm making for these organizations. Let's, we've got to go even above a lot of this general strength uh, and conditioning protocol and, and really better understand uh, the, the skill and how the athletes are adapting to the skill and staying healthy within the skill. I mean, I mean, don't you think it needs to continue to evolve? Yeah, I mean, you guys do such a good job in, with your system and, and knowing what you're looking for with that and then correlating with your Olympic lifts and all those things. I just think this, I think... I think if we think that we're going to get all the information we need from a guy when they're laying on a table doing some static test and that that's going to be the metrics that we make decisions on, I think it's foolish. You've got to put people in positions where you can see their body making adaptations and, and creating cheats for them and their body type. And then you've got to have a bandwidth, right? Like there's got to be, like you said, between 25 and 35, but there's got to be a bandwidth that's acceptable 
And and then you got to find out even more so what's acceptable for their body type and how do they solve these problems kinematically, right? Because every single body type and every single person is going to solve these problems different when their feet are on the ground. That's why I, I get frustrated with these GERD tests and all these things on the table. It's like, great, but when gravity's on set, when you're standing up, your feet are going to change everything. Those 26 bones are going to change the way your body creates movement. I mean, if, you're, if your feet and your subtalar joint and your tibia don't glide, then then why are we just checking the scap when they're on the table? You know what I mean, Brent? It's like... No, you're nailing it. There, there's a lot of things in the kinetic chain that people are choosing to overlook and saying, oh, well, it's a curve problem. But come on, man. I mean, have you looked at them move? Like, how about just watch them move and see you know, what is happening? And that, that, the problem, and the problem is the reason people don't want to do that is because that's subjective. And then with subjectivity, you have to think. And with thinking, it takes more time. But the reality is that's the only way to win this thing. That's it. No, you're right. I mean, when I assess someone, I, I, I mean, I'm assessing them in the drills that I have, I put them through. So, I mean, you're right. The assessment should never end. I mean, it, it you, because there's so much there. In, in a lot of the joint ranges, you're just looking at how the, the anatomy is, 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 is able to find certain positions. But then you've got to see how the central nervous system is stabilizing those positions. And then that's going to change everything. You're right. It, the assessments have to continue to evolve. But I just feel like they've. They think it's enough just to do a lot of this general protocol stuff, and they because at the end of the day they don't really know. They don't really understand how these athletes um, are adapting and and potentially how they could better perform in their movements to keep them healthy. Because they if they did, we wouldn't have a, a, a such a high rate of injury or a pattern of injury in this sport, don't you think? Well, everything they've been sure about has been proven wrong. Right. Every single thing. I, I think that. You know, we've just got to continue to search, but there's no definite answers, but there's definitely there's definitely things that we need to look for. And there's definitely things that we know that are important. And I, I think for these guys that are in charge of them on a daily basis, the, the best way to assess is watch them in a warm-up. Have a warm-up that's so thorough that you can figure out what's available to those athletes that day. And then just like some of my friends at Altus do a great job, they watch these track athletes warm up, and they have therapists on the, therapists on the side of the track. And they'll say, you know what? Your, his adductor's tight, and they'll go get some soft tissue work on the adductor, put him right back in the workout. Or you can find, okay, he's not, his big toe's not getting all the way down in extension. Go, go give him some ankle moves, work on this, and put him right back in the workout. I don't think in pitching, I think it's not integrated enough. Sometimes you need to be able to see stuff, tweak it, put him back in, find out what's available on that day. You're right. We're not, dude, I mean, we're not, that's doing. next level. I, I mean, I hope baseball is doing that because that's the way it needs to be done. The problem is, a lot of those pitching coordinators are going to get involved and say, you know, you can't do that to the pitchers. Like, you're, you're going to throw them off. Like, you know, there's just so much feel in pitching. That's, that's the big word they use, feel. But if you go in and do something like that, you change their hip, you know, uh, extension range of motion or their big toe range of motion, then all of a sudden they could be losing that, what they thought was their feel to be consistent that day, which you saw is <clears throat> potentially was – a big change in where they were in the last start, and that you feel that this could be leading to injury, and then it becomes that war again. Yeah, I mean, the scientific word for feel is proprioception. So right. the, the ability for the body to solve problems with the tissues and, and the biomechanics that it has available at that, that moment in time, and 
proprioceptors are specific to in-range velocity. I mean, that's why the velocity adaptations are so important. Um, what's available from a muscle spindle standpoint, contraction, you know, isometric, or eccentric, concentric, all these different things. And then even the manipulation of the, the, the structure of the body, the skeletal system, is driven by the fascia. And we know for a fact, you can look this up, uh, not just metters, but a lot of these people in anatomy trains, there are fascial lines that go from your big toe all the way to the back of your skull. And if you don't think that that matters more than muscles, then, then you don't understand human movement. They can't look at one muscle here or there and get a good picture of this thing. If you don't think guys can use tweaking and use some of these things in workouts in real time, I think that's where they're just far off and that those can be game-breaking and game-changing implementations from a sports medicine standpoint. They could affect clinics right now. You're right. I I just interviewed Dr. Farmer. He's the physician for the University of Florida, and he's a big baseball guy, and he, I was bringing up the fascial slings, and he was saying, you know, that's a big thing now in science. They're starting to see how, like specifically with pitchers, most of the arm injuries, they're linking to the hip, you know, immobility and, and weakness that, that potentially led to the arm injury. All the way down to the knee? All right. the way down to the knee and the attachment to the fibular head? Absolutely. Yep. No, I think that's – and, I, and I, know, I know other sports have been on that a lot longer than baseball. Baseball is just finally coming around and, and, uh, and trying to understand that, and I think that's huge. Yeah, so, there's so much opportunity out there. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's – I think the hard part is, man, like if, if you, you and I sat in an organization, like in an office with, uh, you know, with the pitching coordinators, with the medical staff and the strength coaches, and, I, and I've been in these positions, I'm sure you have too, it's – it's where when we start talking like this, man, you really feel like you you really feel like you're you're in defense. The moment you talk this way, as much as you want to feel like you want you're collaborating, you just immediately feel like you're you're talking in defense, and and it's just a tough it's a tough environment, unfortunately, in baseball, and, and I think that's the challenge, you know, of it. Yeah, and I think there's gonna people people that are desperate enough to find a way, it's gonna eventually get there. It's just gonna take time. Right now, baseball is real big on the metrics, and I think there's value there. But I think that that's limited, and there's going to be some teams that are going to do some things they shouldn't do from a standpoint of performance that are investigating some of these other areas. You know, it, there, there's there, there's going to be some things that are going to break people out of this mold, and I'm hoping that it's sooner than later. Me too. I'm right there with you. Hey, so kind of the last thing here, just a little bit. I think this would be a good closer here, I'm sure, because we're getting late. What – um mental approach i know there's one thing strength coaches we don't get into a lot but talk about how important the mindset is and and to just not only being successful in a day but being successful over time in, in sport talk about how important that is man it's everything especially for longevity and anybody that i've had that has spent any amount of time that's respectable on, the, on a high level it's really about self-focus and inner focus and What's important to you? I mean, our mantra with our company at APEC is be the best you. And that really is focused on a measurement of yourself. It's like Michael Jordan said, you know, I'm not, I'm not competing with anybody. You know, I'm competing with what I'm capable of. And for us, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you watch a horse race. And I love to watch a diversity of, of different things to draw perspective. But if you watch a horse race, they've got blinders on. And, and yes, they, they've got blinders on because they don't want to see other horses, but come on, they still see them and they hear them. 
the biggest thing is if if you see someone's rhythm, you want to you want to inherently match it. But every every horse has a different length between you know their hip and their knee, and their knee and their foot or their hoof rather, and they don't need to run the same rhythm as the horse beside them because. As you know, with, with horses, some of them kick. Their furlong is right out of the gate. Some of them are good finishers. Some of them are great in the middle of the race. If they try to run the race of the horse beside them, they will most certainly fail. So being focused on yourself and having those blinders on and measuring things within yourself not only gives you the opportunity to improve the most, but it gives you the, the joy and the, the, the happiness that comes from autonomy. And autonomy is going to drive mental performance more than anything else. Because if you look at people like Kevin Durant and what he could be and what he is right now, I'm a huge fan, but he's so focused on others, he and LeBron, that it just, you can see what it does to them from a stress standpoint. It's aging them. And when athletes can focus internally, when they can run their own race, when they can be the best version of themselves, they're going to do things that they shouldn't do, and they're going to improve at a rate that they shouldn't rate. And I think people like Patrick Mahomes, there's such a testament to that. Look at him. He hasn't followed any of the rules. He doesn't play quarterback like anyone else. He doesn't train like anybody else. He doesn't believe to play the position like anyone else. He learns from everyone, but he is still himself. And I think that that is where we got to go with people is letting them be comfortable in expanding who they are within these games. That that's the key in my opinion. Yeah, I think, man, I think you nailed it. I really liked your perspective on rhythm and, and competing to the rhythm. And I think some guys actually benefit from that. But you're right, a lot of the guys let that ruin them. Um, so you're right. I guess it's in a way it, it's knowing, you know, how how your body thrives, or knowing where your body thrives, and, and knowing what to feed it. And that's why you need a coach. I mean, a lot of these athletes we're working with are, are kids, man. Even up at, at the highest level, they're still kids, and, and they really need a mentor to, to help guide them that way, help guide them uh, physically and, and mentally and, and you know, sometimes spiritually and through all this. And it, it, ultimately, this is all just a, a big testament of life and, and a great testing ground to, to discover and learn about yourself in all different facets. And I think coaches that can't guide you from, you know, from the, you know your body to your soul, I think those are coaches that are, you know they have a lot to learn themselves, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think we have to look. The greatest asset for an athlete, from a coaching standpoint, is your coach should bring perspective to your life in a number of ways. You know, power metrics, speed metrics, even performance. Nothing's more valuable than perspective because that can give the gift of all those things. And I think that we have to look at ourselves as someone that is more than a strength coach. And I really, you know, a lot of people like the term strength coach and like, well, we are strength coaches, but I, I don't really want to be reduced to strength coach. Right. Even that, not, not, not to get me wrong. I think that that's a great thing, but um, like a life coach, we're, we're, we're coaches. I mean, we're just yeah. coaches. I mean, you break down what a coach is. It, coaches in the, was, was the term was invented in Western times. You know, coach took you from uh, took something of value from one place to another, and that's what we are. We're we're just I'm just I'm coach. That's what I am. I, I, I want to I want to transport value. I want to give value, and I want to support and I want to carry as much as I can, and 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 that's what I want to be as a coach. And, and we have to define ourselves as more than that. But in order to do that, we've got to bring more value than getting somebody's squad up. You know, we we got to we got to see it as more than it is. Man, I 
think you encapsulated it all, um, and that's why you're a good coach, <laughs> to, to oh. be honest. <laughs> well, uh, I, I really enjoyed your social media. I think, I think you know, how we started off saying you need to position yourself more and showing what you do. I think you're nailing it. So, so others can go and, and enjoy your content. Uh, can you tell them how to find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Stroopbob. That's S-T-R-O-U-P-E-B-O-B. And on Twitter, it's at Bobby Stroop, at B-O-B-B-Y-S-T-R-O-U-P-E. And our company page is at Team APEC, um, which is easy to find us there. So there's, there's going to be a diversity of content between uh, those platforms. And, um, man, I'm honored, I'm honored to connect with any coaches out there. And I look forward to learning from everybody. I mean, I, I'm just a sponge, man. I love to learn and I love to connect with people. And even though uh, we started off cussing at each other, I think uh, I've learned a lot from you. And I appreciate your passion for the game. And I think that it's been it's been great to get to know you and it's helped, helped me as a coach, honestly. Oh, well, thanks, Bobby. I mean, I feel the same. It's, it's been an honor. I feel lucky to have uh, stumbled into your DMs, unfortunately. <laughs> but I'm, and Life I hope we funny, can- Life's funny, man. Life's funny. It is, and I hope we can keep building our relationship, man, because I'm learning a ton from you as well. Oh, thanks, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today, and I appreciate everybody for listening as well.